Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Hey, everybody. As of right now, it's May 20th as I'm recording this intro. There are nine days till my puppy might be born. Oh my goodness, I can hardly wait. The litter is due May 29, and while it may not come exactly on that day, I am anxiously awaiting the news. Because what I'm hoping for is that the litter has enough male puppies, particularly brown males, so that my puppy is in there somewhere. If not, I might have to wait till a future litter, which will be a big bummer (laughs) because I was really, really hanging on this puppy coming this summer. But I'll keep you all updated. Today, I'm bringing you my interview with Anna Morrison Riccordotti, an attorney who specializes in pet law. We'll cover topics like the legal consequences of dog bites, veterinary malpractice, how pets are handled in divorce situations, and more. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I wouldn't have thought of pet law. I didn't even know it existed. But one of my friends said that she talked to you about something once and suggested you as a guest. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. I bet there's a ton that pet owners can learn about pet law. True. Um, And in companion animal law, it's it's probably um, frequently seen in the civil court. But it is, it's still an evolving area. And every state is different on how they, they treat animals under their, you know, under their laws. From New York to California, it, you're going to have different results, but uh, it is a trend and it is uh, definitely changing. And there's a lot of areas we could definitely cover them. Yeah. So how did you get into pet law? Well, it kind of it, interesting. Uh, I was actually working in patent law uh, out in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, when I learned about um, animal law, because my background was in the sciences. So I think it was kind of a natural transition to you go from the sciences and when you were in law, you know, into patent law. But while I was out there, I attended a Taking Action for Animals conference and learned that this was an actual area, you know, of animal law, not just companion animals, but, you know, animals in the wild, entertainment, all sorts of different areas, you know, that you could get into. And, you know, because I've always, you know, I've loved animals since I was little. I've been a vegetarian since I was 10. <laughs> you know, I, I just thought, wow, what a, what a great thing to do. And if I had the opportunity, and I, I did eventually when I moved back to Chicago, I got married with back and kind of part of the deal was I would eventually be able to, you know, open up my own firm and focus on animal issues. So I did. <laughs> so what are some of the common issues that come on in pet law? You know, like, is it more between owners and owners or is it vets or is it like just dogs biting people out in the world it runs the gamut in companion animal law you have you know one area is veterinary malpractice you know much like human medical malpractice you know doctors make mistakes and you know they can be held accountable for them Uh, that is a, a pretty big section another is disputes you know about ownership or guardianship 
that comes up in the context of, of couples, maybe that adopted an animal or purchased an animal together and then they break up and they both may, you know, they believe they have equal interests. They don't want anything to do with each other, but they definitely want the dog or the cat or, you know, whatever companion animal, you know, they may have. That also occurs in divorce, but it's treated differently in divorce. And we'll probably cover that a little bit later. But also dog bites, that's a, a big, a big issue. It comes up as well. And, you know, there, there are varying degrees of, of actions taken against a dog owner and a dog, you know, for those bites. You know, it's not, you know, automatic euthanasia for any bite at all. It's just, it depends highly on the local rules, the locality and the state, um, but mostly the locality. Um, but there are also accidents that happen. You know, people were walking with their, their animals. They may be hit by, you know, a car. We've had cases where people have walked through uh, crosswalks, you know, with their dog and they've both been hit, you know, by a car. Or sometimes a, a dog has been hit when, you know, the dog owner had been doing nothing wrong. And those are usually handled through insurance claims and, you know, disputes with the, the driver. And often, you know, are covered by insurance, but that's where the issues of, of companion animal valuation really come up in the courts and cause a, a lot of, I wouldn't say confusion, but a lot of concern, I think, for those in the animal industries that maybe don't want the animals to be valued as, as highly as they really are, you know, in a particular family. There's also uh, consumer fraud claims in some cases where uh, somebody may have been sold services for their animal and those services were, were not at all you know, truly as advertised, it comes up a lot in boarding agreements where someone says, you know, well, we're going to give the best, absolute best, you know, most perfect uh, services for your animal while you're away on vacation. We're going to take care of them uh, every day. They'll be pampered, groomed, and only come to find out when they, when people return, you know, that maybe their animal died in the boarding facility, or maybe they're, you know, there was these conditions were not at all as advertised, you know, and also with products, you know, sometimes, you know, you've probably heard about the animal food you know, issues of, of many years back, but it comes up every so often, uh, again, and other products sometimes that may be unsafe for animals. So it's really a, a lot of, a lot of the general areas of law, you know, end up involving animals in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I bet that's super interesting. Tell, tell us a little bit about veterinary malpractice. How common are lawsuits and does it tend to lean toward the vet as far as like who wins or does it tend to lean toward the person complaining? Any intri you know, like what are common cases? What are common sure. cases in that area? Sure. And in vet malpractice, I mean, again, like, you know, human medical malpractice, you're really looking at a, a case of where a doctor has made a mistake. It's, it's sometimes called like professional negligence, you know, or professional malpractice. It It's not usually geared at some kind of intentional act, although that can happen. And it has actually happened in veterinary context in some of the cases. But as stated, you know, first, you know, they, these cases do vary. You know, the, the valuations in that for animals vary through all 50 states. Um, and whenever you're going into a professional malpractice case, kind of the rule of thumb is more often than not, than not it will go in favor of a professional um, simply because people, it is in its, you know, again, this is not, you know, a complete and exact science. These are just kind of observations, but that, that people and juries especially tend to have difficulty finding, you know, a doctor, whether it be a human doctor or a veterinary doctor or some other, you know, type of a professional, they, they have a harder time finding them responsible or, or wanting to hold them responsible for mistakes 
simply because it's so scary to think about that this could happen to you or could happen to your animal. It's just kind of strange. And we do try to ferret that out during, you know, jury, you know, our four year asking jurors questions. We've had people on juries before say, well, they didn't want to hold a doctor responsible for a mistake, but they would hold them responsible if they intentionally did something wrong. And well, you can't really do that. That's not the law. The law will hold all of us responsible, including if you're a professional, if you make mistakes. The difference is, is that for a professional, they're held to um, a standard. It's, you know, the, the breach of the standard of care is what they call it. Um, so they're, in every profession, um, including veterinarians, um, there's a standard by which all you know, veterinarians or you know, all professionals of a particular kind are, are held. And that's determined really by other veterinarians, by just the common you know, courses. Same thing is true in, in human medical malpractice you know, cases. But if a person is a general, if the veterinarian is a general practice uh, practitioner, then they are going to be held to a certain standard. If they are specialists, like for cancer diagnosis or um, you know, potential surgical you know, use, if they're board certified, they're going to be held to a higher standard. So when you're looking at a malpractice case, and, and they are more common than they used to be, um, when they go to court, that usually means that any kind of negotiation with the independent veterinarian will have failed. You know, and so you're you're really at court kind of as a last ditch that you know you couldn't work things out between the veterinarian, you know, and the person whose animal was harmed or killed, and so that's why you end up in court. Um, but when you're there, you know, the standard is you know if first if the veterinarian breached the standard of care, you know, and that has to be determined or established through another veterinarian. So it's unless in, in certain cases, like if if there's a really gross error that's happened, and sadly these are not made up examples, but say a veterinarian cut off the wrong leg during a, an amputation surgery for cancer, you know, then you wouldn't necessarily need an expert or another veterinarian to come in and say, yeah, that was wrong. Or if a veterinarian gave like 10 times the accepted dosage of a, of a certain drug or maybe even anesthesia, something like that, then you wouldn't necessarily need an expert to come in and say that. But in most cases, like where there was a mistake made, um, or a breach of the standard of care, you will have to have another veterinarian come in and say, yep, that was a that was a mistake. There was a breach. And not just that, but because of that breach, the animal in question was injured or killed. So it has to be both the breach and the cause of the injury. And that can sometimes be a little bit hard to establish because sometimes when a veterinarian uh, has two courses of action, just like with human medicine, if you're looking at, well, I could take uh, A, you know, and A would potentially, you know, cure or B, B could potentially cure, but they can't both be done. You know, if they were both acceptable, you know, at the time, you know, the veterinarian was making the decision with all the information that the veterinarian had, then choosing the wrong path is not going to be malpractice. But if the veterinarian knew at that point that there is no way that the treatment A would work and the only chance was treatment B, if you didn't use treatment B, then that would be a breach of the standard of care, you know, as established in the industry. But veterinarians, you know, most all veterinarians went into it to help animals. So they're not, you know, really, you know, trying to, to do something wrong or trying to, to cause harm. But the, the problem really comes in where there are damages. And because of the property status of animals, you know, in all 50 states, including Illinois, which Illinois has been number one in animal protection, according to the ALDF or the Animal Legal Defense Fund for 12 years now, a little shout out for Illinois. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, that even here, 
you know, it's very hard um, to really establish valuations because when the, the law considers your animal property, like a, you know, like a toaster or something, you know, the, the law will, will say, well, if someone destroys your toaster, you're entitled to a new toaster. That's it. Or the cost of a new toaster. But the law has recognized really truly in all these states, but some allow more damages, some don't, that a market type of valuation, which is what I just described, like for a toaster, like if, you know, if I, um, if I drop your toaster, it's my fault. You know, I was given the care of the toaster, I drop it and, you know, it's, it's gone. It's, it's ruined. I need to get you a new toaster. That's your damages. But with animals, if I bring my animal to you as a veterinarian and you do something wrong and you end up killing my animal, then obviously the value is not like a toaster because I love my animal. I love, you know, I, I would not have brought my animal to you, but for my care and concern for them and de desire to bring them back to health um, or to get them whatever treatment is needed. Uh, you know, even if it's just like rabies shots or, or something else. Uh, whereas, um, you know, when you look at the market valuation as a toaster compared to the real valuation that we all have, you know, as animal companion animal owners and guardians, that it doesn't compare. And for a veterinarian whose business is based upon that bond, I mean, because my toaster breaks, I'm going to throw it out. <laughs> you know, Tutsi breaks his pinky paw, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars, you know, to, to get him help. And I wouldn't do that, but for my emotional connection. So when a veterinarian, especially, or anybody in the animal industry, um, the companion animal industries, makes a claim that, oh, well, your animals, you know, just go get another animal, or here's 50 bucks, go, go adopt one down the street. When you had a bond with that animal is really hypocritical, because if you didn't care, if you didn't have that emotional connection, you would never have sought their services in the first place. You know, and that's something that Stephen Weiss has talked about. He's a, you know, a, a legal scholar. You know, and he's he's talked about the the fact that you know for you know for a veterinarian to claim that an animal is just worth you know market value or you know what another animal might be worth in a you know for sale is just is completely wrong because then it would really render any small animal veterinarian you know useless because people wouldn't even bring them in for shots you might as well throw them out get a new one so that's where the rub is because as an industry the veterinarians have really profited, you know, and been able to profit without liability for um, damages that they may have caused to these animals. Uh, because if you, you know, you spend, you know, $6,000, $7,000, or more, you know, on an animal through their life, and then the veterinarian makes a mistake and, and doses your animal with, you know, five times, you know, the amount of something kills them, to say, well, here, just go get another animal, doesn't recognize the investment you made in that emotional connection you have. So it, it is difficult. And in a lot of states, they only will allow market value. But in states like Illinois, um, I believe there's some cases in New York, other cases, I think there was one in Hawaii, and there are others you know, scattered throughout where the courts have really recognized that the valuation that should be given in a lawsuit or in any kind of loss like that is actual value, which is the value of the companion animal to the owner or guardian. And that is somewhat hard to establish because there are no guidelines really for that. It, it kind of depends on the testimony of the person. So, you know, we've had people who are, who are seniors, you know, and, and this, is, this was an animal that was brought into their life when their part, you know, that when their spouse were, or something was still alive. And, you know, they, this is now their only person. <laughs> I wouldn't say person, I guess, yeah, well, there's a whole other argument for personhood, but 
I'll, I'll leave that to the other scholars. But there's a, you know, that's the being that they connect with. That's, you know, that's their source of enjoyment. They go out, they walk this animal. And because of their, you know, older status, they may not want to bring another animal into their life at that point, but for fear, because it hurts. You know, when you, when you have an animal in your life and you bond with them, to lose that animal, there is an actual loss. So when the courts recognize this, a lot of the courts have limited this to like loss of companionship, if you will, like kind of like a loss of consortium claim, like when someone loses a loved one, a human, but it's far less than, than what you get for a loss of a human. Um, you get an amount, you know, probably more in the tens of thousands versus the hundreds to millions, you know, that you would get for the loss of a person. So it's, it's very, it's very, but you have to recognize that, you know, it's something that I think people, many people in quarantine may be recognizing now that their animals may be their only source of companionship and comfort. And I think more people may be able to relate to this concept that their animal is very close to them and very much a part of their family as much as other. And simply because, you know, they may not have the same status as human doesn't mean they're not still extremely highly valued by the people who uh, have that animal in their life. So the valuation is a really big sticking point with a lot of these cases. And, you know, some courts, you know, just do not want to recognize an animal as having value beyond a market value. But many other courts are, are recognizing this, have recognized this. And the question now is how to value it. Um, but, but yes, you know, in short, you know, veterinary malpractice cases, they happen, unfortunately, they happen a little more than they probably should. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, some of which are, because uh, there, there are a lot of chains now uh, for veterinarians. Um, there, there aren't quite as many smaller shops, uh, uh, general practitioners. And sometimes that can be good and bad. Sometimes chains will have a, like a checklist of things and you know, it can be more standardized and, and, and sometimes better. But if you have a veterinarian you trust, and that you, you can talk to and, and talk about your animal with and, and look at different treatments when things happen, definitely go, go that route, <laughs> you know, because if you can find someone you can trust, that will help a lot, you know. And one of the big um, other issues in veterinary malpractice, you know, tends to be that there isn't a lot of communication. So just like in human malpractice, when you have informed consent, like, you know, do you want to take this drug, you know, if you don't know if it's going to work or not, um, but you have to be told what the, the chances are or, best known chances are and what the potential downsides are. So that's another area that, that comes up a lot in veterinary malpractice is the lack of informed consent. So. With malpractice cases, is there any trend in terms of like the veterinarians who have gotten malpractice lawsuits against them? Do they tend to be repeat offenders? You know, where like, oh, wow, this doctor is constantly doing things this weird way or, is, or do they tend to be one-off mistakes? You know, I would say it's like half and half. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I would say I tend to see more of the same clinics um, and the same, you know, groups of doctors. Yeah, it, it, like, a, like a particular clinic or a particular chain. And, and this is, it's hard to say because I have seen the same, I have seen repeat offenders, but, but, a, but it can be a one-off and, and that's the ideal, you know, is you, you want, you know, you want someone, you know, to, to only make, you know, a mistake and it was truly a mistake then they might not make it again, or hopefully they'd learn from that. Uh, but there are some places, and I'll, I'll leave them nameless, you know, that tend to pop up again and again in these cases. And it could just be the way the procedures are done, or it could just be the volume of people that they're seeing, you know, the more you see. 
Because mm -hmm. if some of the situations that come up um, tend to be, if, if they're, the veterinarian may be overworked, there may be too many animals at a place at a given time, there may be too much responsibility allocated without enough resources. So that is, is something that comes up sometimes in veterinary malpractice cases. But, but they are. They, they are hard cases to win simply because, you know, there, there's, cert, there's a certain mental um, issue with, you know, with like blaming a doctor because you think, well, a doctor, you know, you want them to be able to make the right decisions. You, you don't want to believe that there could be mistakes made because that impacts you. Um, and also proving that, that, you know, you have to have another veterinarian testify in most cases that, that there was a breach of the standard of care. And traditionally, the veterinary uh, field is, is somewhat smaller. It's not like the, the human, you know, vet doctor field, like you, not so hard to get another vet or another doctor to testify against, you know, a human doctor or same thing with attorneys, accountants, you know, any of the other professions where you might need, you know, a standard of care to be established and shown to be breached. But the veterinarians, um, many times their clients will call and say, well, the veterinarian I brought my dog to after this mistake was made doesn't want to testify in court. And well, they don't necessarily have a choice about that, but they will often, you know, choose their words carefully to say that, you know, they don't want to render an opinion as to whether the first, the conduct was bad and, or, you know, breached the standard of care, which is a huge problem, you know, for establishing the liability. Um, but there are veterinarians out there now who have, you know, have, you know, seeing that there are a lot of veterinarians who have made mistakes and that to better establish the field and to better keep the standards high, that they will, you know, render opinions as to whether there was a breach of the standards or not and whether that led to the animal's demise. It's almost like I've talked to like other, um, like personal injury attorneys, like people who've done medical malpractice, and they said it used to be like that a long time ago with the, the human field, but that changed once the cases became more common. And there are a lot of veterinarians. Um, you know, then they're, they're becoming more and more uh, common as the chains are established and, you know, and people, you know, routinely have these animals, you know, in their homes, their family, they're brought. So these cases are going to increase, you know, simply because of the numbers, you know, of people who have animals and who care about them. <laughs> so yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, as a pet owner, I'd want to feel safe and feel like the veterinarian, you know, I don't know if something happened to my dog and it was because of the veterinarian, I'd want, the thing I'd want most is to, for them to recognize what they did and have right. remorse. And I wouldn't need tens of thousands of dollars. I would want to not have to pay for the mistake, you know, like. Right. And, and sometimes what happens is the person may have brought their animal to a subsequent trainer. And I'm not, you know, this, this is not an exaggeration to say this is 20, 30, $40,000 of of expense to bring that animal back to health mm -hmm. so in many situations in some cases i think even even like you know illinois you know though there are cases that establish that if you spent that to try to bring your animal back to health then yes you know you would be entitled to that if you prove the breach and you know the that the causes were related to that breach but what is harder is then if that animal passes establishing the value of loss to you because to simply just give you the money back that you already paid, well, then you haven't been given anything for your animal, for the loss of your animal, which is the crux of it. Mm -hmm. And you know that's why you know when we bring the cases, we try to show the juries and the courts, like, look, this is how much was spent on this animal. This animal was worth at least that, you know, because I can guarantee you, I have not spent anything on my toaster, <laughs> you know, at all, you know. 
even if there's a ding on the side, you know, I'm not even going to try to fix that, you know. So, I mean, with our animals, these are not the same property, you know, despite whatever legal categorization, you know, may be claimed. Because in every state, there are felony laws against harming animals. There are no felony laws against, you know, harming, <laughs> you know, there are owner duties. There are other, you know, uh, statutes, rules, regulations in place that provide for the protection of animals. You know, however strong or weak they may be, they exist. And they do not exist for toasters, tables, or chairs. Yeah, so, I'm envisioning like, you know, toaster protection services. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and that's why cause when, you, when you come up in court against, um, usually it's, you know, insurance companies have hired, the, you know, the attorneys for, for the defense. And they, you know, they will argue that, look, this is just property. There's nothing more than market value. But that is so hypocritical when you look at these industries and the money that's spent on the, these animals because of your bond with that animal. It's, these are not cases, my, my typical case is not a, like a breeder case where somebody may have a, you know, a very highly prized, you know, animal that they would, um, you know, take to Westminster or something, you know, like that, you know, any kind of a show. These are not the kinds of cases we, we typically have um, because those cases would have a clear market value. You know, the courts have recognized there's really no market value, you know, like for my tuxie or, you know, for, for anyone's, you know animal except to them you know they they would pay to you know to bring them back to health or to save their life or you know experience you know they understand that there's a loss you know in pounding. but i guess the hard part is when you're in you know when you're up against an industry who has had you know really no liability for many many years it's really hard you know to change that although i do think the courts are coming around i think they're you know they're seeing it they understand that, wow, this is not the same. And if you deny someone a right for redress, you know, for actions. And, and I know that, you know, you may want the you know, veterinarian to just say they're sorry or, you know, that they wouldn't do it again. And there are, you know, every state has disciplinary bodies. So if somebody doesn't want to go to court and, and try to sue for money damages, which is completely fine, you know, they can go to the IDFPR. Well, in Illinois, it's Illinois Disciplinary, um, Illinois Department of um, financial and professional regulation, but every state has a professional regulation department division that veterinarians would be covered by. And so they can be reported and investigated. But the reason for, for seeking money damages, and it's not just because all attorneys are, you know, greedy, you know, everyone knows you know, that, but it, it's more that, that without a penalty, without some kind of, I don't know, reason to not do this in the future, a lot of the companies that own you know, the, the clinics, which are, are not really independently owned so much anymore, there isn't really an incentive to do that. When there's a monetary penalty or a monetary, um, you know, <laughs> I guess a, a, something that they have to pay out, that is what a business understands mm -hmm. in the bottom line. And if they don't then better their procedures and better, you know, the protections for their animals, you know, in rendering these services, that they could face, you know, money losses. That's why, you know, we bring the cases. It's, it's not going to bring your animal back, but it could serve as an incentive for veterinarians and the industry as a whole to better their practices so that it doesn't happen again. And that's really why these lawsuits are brought. You know, I, I have yet to meet a client that, that has come in and, and just wanted to cash in because they know going in that these are hard cases and they, you don't always win. And, and a lot of times, you know, a lot of times they'll settle, but a lot of times, you know, you can lose. And knowing that is hard. 
Um, And even fighting it is hard. It's such a double-edged sword because I want professionals to have a certain level of like fear (laughs) without them being like making every decision from like, well, this will avoid a lawsuit, right? Like, Right. Like we have to do all these things in this way just to avoid a lawsuit versus like, I want to do things in the best way possible. Is there a statute of limitations for bringing up a, a lawsuit against a veterinarian? Yes. Yeah. In every state, again, every state is different, but usually professional malpractice, you know, can be, you know, a year or two years. You want to check. That's why for, for every state, you got to check with a veterinarian or <laughs> they won't tell you, but I'm but, um, you know, with an attorney um, in that state, uh, you know, to see what the professional uh, professional malpractice um, claim limits are. You know, so most of the time it would be, I guess, you know, two years. But every state can be different. Every law, you know, every state has different laws concerning those. But usually there is a statute and it's often somewhat shorter than you might expect it to be. So that's, yeah, a very, very good question. So if something happens, but, you know, for two reasons, really. If you, if you have a case or if you're concerned, you know, a lot of people are, they, you know, there, something happens, you know, while their animal is sick, their animal dies, they're concerned about it, but they don't know what to do. What you can do is you can always get a second opinion from another veterinarian. You can always have a veterinarian review those records. And it doesn't have to be even in the context of going for a lawsuit. But, you know, before we bring a lawsuit where, where one, where a veterinarian is needed to review, we'll send the file you know, to, to a vet and just say, can you tell us what you see in the file? You know, we're not asking them to look for something like a breach. We just want to know what happened. And most of the time, people just want to know what happened. You know, so you, you can definitely do that and then find out, you know, if there was a breach or not. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can try mediation. You can try to talk to the veterinarians. You can try to talk to the, the vet facility and say, hey, this is what happened. We think there was a problem with what you did. Can you talk to us? So there, you know, there are actually, you know, skilled mediators in animal law that, you know, can talk with the parties and see if they can reach a resolution. Um, Because, you know, we all know, yeah, you're not going to bring your animal back. We're just trying to make it better for the next person or even, you know, you in the future, you know, because as the standards, you know, get better, you know, as people are held accountable and held to the standards, you know, the entire field will get better. But yeah, but the concern, yeah, you don't want to run someone out of business and nobody really wants that either. They just want people to adhere to the standards and recognize that that these animals are not toasters to us. They are our family. And, you know, it's it's a really tough situation to be in, you know, as a veterinarian, I think, where the industry would be telling you, you know, well, if you do something wrong, you use that property status. But the you know, consumers, the clients coming in, you know, for their animals, if they hear a veterinarian say, I think your animal's worth $50, like a toaster. Oh, actually, I don't even have a toaster that expensive let's say a chair, you know, um, you know, the, the, no one's going to use that better because it's, it does, does it, it isn't in line with why we would bring an animal to the veterinarian for care. Right. Right. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. 
this is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. Let's switch gears and go to um, dog bites and legal consequences of that. I have a bunch of questions, you know, from a lot of different people when I told them I'm going to be meeting with a pet law attorney. You mentioned it's not, it's not automatic that a dog who bites somebody is going to be put down. Um, And so tell us what, you know, what's typical, what's common, even though states and different cities might have variations. Sure. No problem. And, and, and again, I cannot stress that enough that all the states, you know, do different in their laws. But even with dog bites, it's even more precise. Like uh, in, um, and this is something you'll probably hear a lot about with, you know, as the pandemic goes on, you know, where you, we hear about federal control, state control, and then local control. Because states can allow certain localities like counties, uh, municipalities, you know, cities and towns to have even more restrictive, if you will, requirement on animals. So it's not just state laws that are important, but also like county and city laws that pertain to dog bites. That's uh, really important because uh, most of the time when, when a dog bite happens, it, it'll be like in a dog park or somebody will be out walking and they have no idea, you know, where to look for the law on that topic, you know, but most of the time, if you go to your, your village, they will have a dog bite law or they'll have some kind of law in place. The tendency or the trend is that they are not as draconian as they used to be. Probably 50 years ago, a dog bite would potentially or more likely end up resulting in the death of that dog. But more of the cities, counties, and states have developed different categories, such as like dangerous dog, or actually even um, a nuisance dog, you know, for dogs that are just off leash, dangerous dog for a dog that may have bitten, you know, or vicious dog for a dog that bit. In, in a manner that caused severe injury. So when you're looking at this, you, know, you have to look at was, you know, was the dog's reaction to something that startled the dog? And if that's true, most of these laws have provocation defense. And, you know, when, when people say that, you know, they ask, what are you talking about? You know, as far as a, how do you judge a dog's reaction? And that's where Illinois comes in again. Um, if you're looking, Illinois has a whole lot of case law on what's called a reasonable dog standard. And, you know, as, as all the, the law students and lawyers in the audience would know, like, you know, you hear about um, when you go to the law school, the reasonable man standard, like what would a person do in that situation, a normal, reasonable person? Well, there are cases that establish, you know, at least in this state, and I think some others as well, what a reasonable dog would do in that situation. So let's say, you know, you're, uh, you're walking out with your dog and a jogger zooms past you and your dog is startled and bites the jogger. Now, the court can look at that and say, well, was it reasonable for the dog to react that way? Was the dog scared? Okay, then, you know, then there would potentially be no liability and no harm then coming to that dog. Because when a dog bite occurs, there's usually a ordinance violation. So that's like a quasi-criminal, <laughs> you know, where they can put a penalty on you. Um, and then there's also civil liability. So the person who's bitten is going to call or going to say, well, I want, you know, to be compensated for my pain, suffering, and any damages, you know, for medical, you know, for a dog bite. This can also be true for a dog biting another dog. Um, 
But all that said, you know, they look at the severity, you know, of the bite. Like a, this wasn't, this would be a situation where it's, it's, you could make the argument for provocation because provocation traditionally, you know, we think of it as like, if you go up and you kick a dog, the dog bites you. Yeah, you provoke the dog. The dog didn't do anything wrong. If you go over and you take food away from a dog, you know, that's considered provocation. And the dog, you know, if, if the dog responds in biting you, that wouldn't be wrong. Now, if the dog were to respond by mauling you to death, that may be seen as like an extreme reaction to a provocation. So that's why they, you know, the, the powers that be, whether it be the judges or an administrative hearing officer, they look at this in the context of, of the actions that were taken. So it's not necessarily that, you know, oh, your dog bites someone or bites another dog, they're going to be killed. Not necessarily. It's just that, you know, they will look at the, the entirety of the circumstances that occurred. And, you know, even if your dog, you know, did something that, you know, would deem the dog dangerous, that's not necessarily a death sentence. Although there are some pretty harsh penalties in places, like, like here in Chicago, if, you're, um, if your dog bites without provocation, like say that there is a, an incident that occurs like in a dog park, your dog bites another dog, then your dog could be deemed dangerous and then be subject to an insurance requirement. And I kid you not, it's like a $100,000 policy that is not necessarily covered under your existing policy, like, a, like one that you may have for your home. Because initially, like that first bite is usually covered under a, a policy, some type of policy that you likely already have for homeowners. Um, or renters, um, but then you may have to have, you know, a leash, you know, and muzzle requirement for the dog. Uh, you know, you may have to have a, a six foot fence, you know, put up around signs out in front of your house. Beware, dangerous dog! Microchipping and neutering requirements. So, a dangerous dog status does come with penalties, but it's often not euthanasia. Now, if there was something worse, like say your dog mauled another animal to death, then you could be under a vicious dog, or say your your dog mauled a person um, and, and caused great harm, that's more likely to be a vicious kind of categorization. And under viciousness, more often there would be a euthanasia um, order or to say like this animal would be so dangerous that euthanasia is warranted. Um, but even in some cases there, you may be able to seek banishment. So you could potentially have the dog sent elsewhere to a different state, different location, where they, another person could be trying to train the dog or to allow the dog to live out their life without whatever stimuli it was that was maybe just kind of inherent to that dog or you know to that particular situation that could help. But in a lot of these cases, it can help to have an expert dog trainer or a behaviorist come in and evaluate the dog's behavior in that situation to inform a court or a trier fact what happened, you know, what triggered that dog. Because um, sometimes a lot of us, a lot of us that have adopted animals, um, you know, we're taking them, you know, into our homes, you know, and we're, we, we don't know. And, and sometimes the rescuers don't even know, you know, what circumstances they came from. So we may not know that maybe the smell of smoke triggers something in that dog. Like maybe they were beaten by somebody who smoked. You just don't know. And so, you know, it, it's really hard always, you know, to, to evaluate the situation. But a trainer um, can come in often and, and make that assessment. But just because a dog bites doesn't mean, you know, like, oh, gosh, the dog is going to die now. No, the courts are going to look at the circumstances. They're going to look at if the, you know, whether the dog can be potentially, you know, rehabilitated. There's, you know, sometimes training requirements that come with a dangerous dog status. The harder stuff is where a dog, for, for reasons that you really can't be discerned by us, would, would go and maul an animal to death 
or you know to 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 harm you know a person for you know again without some kind of provoking stimuli those are the cases where euthanasia may be more likely to be implemented there are other cases which i mean i guess you may know kind of closer to where they have the pit bull bans um, where an animal simply based on their breed uh, they could seek euthanasia if the animal's not removed now there has been a trend in removing those bans because most um I guess I should say more people are no, you know, realizing that yes, animals are individuals, just like we are, you know, and it doesn't depend on, you know, the the breed or the type. Every animal is different, and so the breed bans are, are extremely unfair, and will cause people who maybe have moved into a community and didn't know about a breed ban, uh, either have to move or to lose their animal in that process. So uh, that said, you know, there is a reasonable you know, look at. Honestly, look up reasonable dog standards. It exists. <laughs> and, you know, in, in any municipality or any city, town, village, they're going to likely have rules that talk about, you know, what would be deemed a dangerous dog, what would be deemed a vicious dog. And, you know, if that, and in another trend, I guess, the one I really like, and I'm hoping more municipalities adopt this, is that, that you could remove the dangerous status after a certain period of time. Because what will often happen is sometimes or I should say puppies, you know, younger animals, you know, they're a little more rambunctious, you know, just getting out, um, learning their way around, you know, will maybe bite another animal. And in certain municipalities, that can be a dangerous designation on the first bite. But, and, you know, but knowing that that would be a lifelong designation, some places have put into effect a removal statute. So if you can show that your dog, like maybe passes the canine good citizenship test or has gone through the appropriate training and doesn't react to the same stimuli, you can have that dangerous status removed and then your animal wouldn't have to have a muzzle on all the time. Um, so it's, it's worthwhile you know, to, to consider and if you're in a municipality and they're thinking about that kind of uh, language or ordinance, definitely, you know, it, it's worth supporting a removal. And there are also you know, uh, reckless owner statutes kind of coming into play. And, and I know Illinois, you know, has something like that. Uh, so it, what it does is people who maybe put their, get an animal, put them out on a chain. And of course, you know, without any interaction with people or other animals, you know, they're going to develop, or I shouldn't say it's automatic, but they have more tendency to develop bad characteristics if they're treated badly. And sometimes what will happen is that animal will be in an altercation and, you know, they'll say, oh, well, just, just take my animal, euthanize them, I'll get a new one. And so you start to recognize this animal owner is the problem, not the animal. And, you know, we don't want to, we want to be careful with those statutes because, you know, like many of us in rescue who have adopted animals, you, again, you, you don't know where the animal is coming from. You don't know what uh, characteristics they may have. And so, you know, you take on that risk. But for people that you know have done this, you know, that, that, that are repeat offenders and they, they really, truly, it's their own actions that are causing these animals to, to develop these bad characteristics. Reckless owner statutes can be very helpful. Sorry, I didn't mean to go too. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. What about um, rescues? Do are rescues liable if a dog that they're in the care of bites someone after adoption? Is there any liability there? You know, they they will have like a, a liability waiver in their contracts that say, you know, we you know, and, and this is really something that rescues are advised to do is to give all the information they have about an animal. Uh, because if you give that information to the adopter, the adopter knowingly takes it on either knowing there is no information or that maybe this dog had a dog bite in the past or other behavioral information as well as the medical, you know, that can be given 
then the rescue is usually cleared of that liability because that's assumed by the adopter. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the key for the rescue is to make sure that you reveal all that information. Any of us who are adopters, you know, have done that many times, you know, said, well, I'm going to take on that risk. You know, I, I've taken in many a feral cat, <laughs> you know, who just didn't like, you know, those people, but, you know, maybe likes one or two. It's a rescue. They can be liable if they have not disclosed the information that they know about. Mm-hmm. But if, they, if they've disclosed everything they have, then they're typically not, you know, liable. I want to go to a different topic now. Um, what happens to a breeder or any person if they're found to be neglecting or hoarding or otherwise keeping animals in poor conditions? You know, every now and then there's cases like this. There was recently a case in Florida where some rescue friends of mine pulled a number of dogs from a breeder who had over time ended up neglecting the dogs for whatever reasons. Animal control might tell a breeder, you know, here's the date we're coming back to seize the dogs. So the breeder might have time to place these dogs with rescue or hide them or kind of like cover her bases and then go back to what she was doing or he. Talk about that a little bit, like, you know, versus a person who's maybe hoarding and neglecting versus a breeder who's hoarding and neglecting. Right. Yeah, no, it's in that, those scenarios, they happen all the time. I wish they didn't. But, um, but first, you know, I'll, I'll address the hoarder part first because that comes up and it's a huge problem for rescues because rescues are often then tapped, say, and again, no exaggeration, there's 100 cats or 100 dogs in this place. We need your help to get them out. And they have no information about these animals, but they are taking them because that's part of what they do as a not-for-profit charitable organization. But when it comes to the hoarders, the recidivism rate without treatment, or sometimes even with, is 100%. So somebody who is, is mentally ill, who really, they either are collectors, there's a couple different kinds of collectors that, that see the animals as simply objects, just like they would collect teacups, they would collect cats, dogs, whatever they could. And so there, they don't really care so much about the um, well-being of the animals, they just want them. And I don't know why that happens, and I don't, I don't even think all the psychologists know why that happens, but they know that it's something that if it is allowed, if the person goes unchecked, someone's not looking in on them, it will happen again. There's also the, the rescue hoarder, which is a less, I wouldn't say sinister, but, but well, it's more well-intentioned, where someone has, is rescuing and then bringing in more animals to rescue, believing they can help them all, not realizing they don't have the resources to do it. But both of those scenarios, have very high recidivism rates, you know, close to 100% based on some of the studies that were done. So what the courts have tried to do, um, and and it's hard because putting a restriction on someone's ability to own property is, is tricky, you know, but with animals, it's a little easier because there are actual laws in place that require care for these animals because they're living beings. The courts have at least, and the laws have at least recognized that, um, that yes, they're living sentient or they're living beings and they need care. They need adequate food, water, and veterinary care when needed. And so most of the time, the hoarders cannot keep up with those requirements. And so they will often fail and there, there can be repercussions. You just have to have a judge who's willing to put that restriction in like maybe three years, four years. You know, maybe that they sign off that their animals, uh, that they relinquish their animals. And then they can avoid some of the penalties, the monetary penalties. Because most of the time for hoarders, whether it be rescues or collectors, 
and if they're not providing adequate veterinary care, it's because they don't have enough money. You know, they, they just don't have the resources to provide it. And, you know, they're, it's really monitoring them, you know, through the, you know, police or whatever agencies would be in place to make sure they're not doing it again. Or if they are, which is likely going to do, that you can stop it earlier or before a lot of animals are harmed. When it comes to breeders, different situations. Now there are your typical your hobby breeders, which are different. Like there are, are people, you know, maybe that work very closely with AKC or that do follow guidelines that they care about the animals and have very strict regulations on placement and things like that. Those are not the breeders I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about like a backyard breeder who maybe will try to breed their their animal with who knows a neighbor's animal, anybody available, you know, and sell the puppies for like a couple hundred bucks a piece. And sadly, that market is is functioning. The reason it's functioning is because most places breeders are not regulated, uh, or like backyard breeders are not regulated. They aren't, and it's kind of odd because it, a lot of places like AKC will fight ordinances on breeding, even though the people who are following AKC rules would clearly pass. You know, they would not have any problem getting licenses, but we're more targeting the backyard breeders who it would never pass any of those qualifications at all. But but I think it's just like a I guess a fundamental note, they just don't want any regulations on it. Whereas it really is needed, you know, to help prevent a lot of these unwanted litters. Cause what happens is, is the backyard breeder, if they can't sell all 10 of their puppies, they're going to dump them at the animal control where they're either going to be, you know, where they're bigger now and they maybe won't have as easy a chance getting into home. They're just going to dump them there and they'll be euthanized or, you know, become a problem of this, you know, of the locality, you know, the taxpayer problem. Um, so everyone does have an interest in it, whether they care or not <laughs> necessarily about the animals. Um, but then the high scale, like uh, the the bigger breeders, like the puppy mills or somewhere in between, yeah, they are subject to inspection because most of the time they will have like a kennel license or they will have some kind of USDA, what have you. Um, but if they're not, you know, or if they don't have a license and they're being inspected by local uh, law enforcement, it is odd um, because some of the uh, places will call ahead and say, hey, we're coming to inspect you. And, you know, as somebody from the outside looking at the, the abuses being done to these animals is, is saying, are, are you kidding? What are you doing? You know, why, why would you do that? But they we're do We're coming it. to drug raid you, so get ready. One week from today, we're going to check if you have drugs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. I don't understand why they would give a heads up like that. But there are some, Sometimes even the state agencies, like the departments, like sometimes it's the Department of Agriculture who's charged with inspecting facilities that are animal businesses. And that would, you know, potentially include, you know, the breeders if they have kennels, things like that. But they'll call ahead and yeah, say, we're going to come out, we're going to inspect you, you know, we got a complaint. And that usually gives them anywhere from like 24 to 72 hours to really get their act together. And often they do, or often they'll transfer these animals to somewhere else. Um, it's, it's not very well regulated. Um, it's, it's not well enforced. And I wish I had an answer for, for why it's done that way. But it, it My often- understanding is that the USDA treats breeders and their animals as though they were livestock. So the requirements for how these animals are kept is closer to livestock and property property versus pet dogs that require sort of a higher level of care. True. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that to be true. Some states may have higher requirements or better requirements, but often not, you know, because USDA licenses will be governed essentially by USDA rules. 
some states will take on the enforcement of that depending on what agreements they may have in place. But even so, yeah, the conditions in a breeding operation are poor at best. And that's why, you know, when, when people think, well, oh, I just want to buy this dog at the dog store, they're not really thinking about the industry behind it. And, you know, that dog, you know, may be extremely lucky to go into a home and a family uh, who, you know, who gets that dog, but the dog's parents, they never get out. They die in that little filthy cage. You know, sometimes when you see the raids of, of the facilities that have been shut down, and you know it's got to be really bad <laughs> to be shut down. Um, I mean, sometimes these dogs, uh, you know, their, their claws are wrapped around the cages. They, they're so long, so unkept, and just given the very of care. But it also becomes a problem in the, the pet stores. And that's why a lot of, you'll see a lot of uh, places with puppy lemon laws, just like a car lemon law. Uh, those laws are not usually very good. They're often drafted by the industry to limit the amount of damages to what you paid for the animal instead of what you really should be getting under consumer fraud. But, um, but that said, and then there's, there's a lot of debate about whether you can still bring fraud claims, and I think you should, but either way, um, when that happens, uh, these, these animals sometimes are very sick. You know, they may have diseases that came from a very close, as, as we've all learned now in the pandemic about viruses and spread and, you know, how quickly things can happen. But in these um, very confined breeding operations, uh, sometimes these puppies, when they're born, they can be very, very sick. And they'll be sent to the stores and stores may give them anti-diarrhea, you know, anti-vomiting type medicines to sort of mask the problem, maybe knowingly, maybe not knowingly. Um, but but then someone who buys this animal for a couple thousand dollars is, again, exaggeration, but what um, sometimes this, this will, you know, this will occur and they'll only find out, you know, maybe a, a week or so later, maybe two weeks later that the animal's very, very sick and they're spending thousands of dollars at a vet to bring them back to health, but they may have signed a warranty or a, an agreement with the pet seller that they're limited to whatever they paid, like a thousand dollars. So they may have spent you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars to bring this animal back to health. Let's say they had parvo, or say they had something really bad, uh, and yet they may have signed an agreement, probably not knowing they signed it or not reading it, not understanding it if they did read it, because it's yeah. usually pretty dense. And those, you know, parasites and viruses are probably the tip of the iceberg for pet store puppies. There's so many hereditary conditions that weren't screened or you know bred out of those lines to begin with. That even if they survive parvo, they're probably going to have hip dysplasia and autoimmune disease and et cetera, et cetera. For me, one red flag, and this is counterintuitive for maybe the average person, but for me, if I'm looking for a breeder and I say USDA inspected and licensed on their website, to me, that's a red flag that either they're really big and breeding way too many dogs or something else is up because a true high quality breeder just doesn't breed enough dogs to need to be USDA inspected. And that's like the lowest bar. That's the lowest bar to brag about. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And we said there was a gentleman that was on our Illinois State Bar Association, you know, animal law section council. There's a group of attorneys that would kind of talk about the issues. He was an AKC breeder, but he was a truly good breeder. His name was David Hopkins. And he passed away this last year from, from cancer. And he is missed um, because he usually he provided the voice of what standards should be you know um, for hobby breeders because most of us you know me I've never purchased an animal we've always had rescue animals but for that other segment you know for those people who do you know there there are you know quality breeders versus those that are 
the pet, you know, that is the pet puppy mill, you know, empire. And I agree. And in the, the you know, tip of the iceberg, for sure. Um, you hear about hip dysplasia all the time, very expensive. You hear about other hereditary uh, genetics, you know, genetic diseases that come up. Whereas a hobby breeder, somebody like, you know, David, who, you know, did breed, every dyer in Sam is known, charted, and everything is available. And he's willing, you know, very proud. Of, he would have, you know, been proud to tell you of all the histories of, of this. Whereas, you know, the puppy mills, they would just as soon pull out, oh, okay, well, we'll just kill them off and no big deal. But they don't even really do that. Yeah. Um, breeding them and sending them out to people who un- unwittingly will purchase. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. And, I, and I'm going to add something just for the sake of our listeners, because I think it's important. Um, I mentioned recently that we're getting a standard poodle puppy. Uh-huh. And the great, you know, when you talk to a responsible breeder, you can ask like any, what conditions are in this line? Because with pure breeds, there's always certain conditions that are kind of inherent, like not every dog is going to have it, but it sort of comes around now and then. Um, and so, for example, a standard poodle breeder would say, you know, the dam has a sire or a great grandsire or something like that, that there was Addison's that showed up in that line five generations back. Like they're going to be able to tell you that. They're not going to say, oh yeah, our dogs are always healthy, perfectly healthy. There's nothing, you know, we've looked at the lines and everyone's healthy a <laughs> hundred generations back because it's not possible. At some point, something's going to come up and a good breeder is going to, and this is just for listeners, when you're looking for a breeder, you need to ask about these things that are common in the breed. And it's fairly rare, extremely rare for nothing to be in any line. But knowing what you're looking at, you can make an informed decision. So that's just for listeners who are looking for puppies <laughs> and looking at breeders. I, I wish I could defer you to David Hopkins because he really did know this area. So yeah. well, and he was a great proponent for better conditions and just things a lot better. Because, you, know, you know, as you can imagine on our animal law council, you know, there were lots of fiery debates and ideologies and different you know, he was a truly good person and he is, is greatly missed and he knew this so, so well. And was yeah. a, he really was a good representative for, for people, you know, who, who were breeders for, for that, you know, purpose. And then yeah. I think, I, I do, I wish I could defer you to him to answer those questions because I know. okay. No, I mean, this is, I just wanted to share with listeners because I think it's important um, because our listeners are primarily doodle owners or people considering doodles, a mixed breed, so not even a true breed most of the time. Um, They have a lot of hype and marketing around them. So I'm always trying to like inject facts so people can learn to discern, you know, from the marketing on breeder websites and actually ask good questions of the breeders. For for anybody who is uh, deceived by a breeder, any kind of breeder, um, one thing we did find, you can bring a fraud suit because it's a fraudulent inducement you know made promises that for hundreds of years back whatever it, or even not even that far we've actually found like a couple steps back in the dyer and the stamp that we found that these were known to the breeder and still sold representation that there were no genetic defects known and so there you know we settled cases um, based on fraud so that you can bring you can seek damages for that you know and, and it actually can be good for the breed as well as you know the individual who is spent for addison's for hip dysplasia for all the other things so just as a quick note, but anyway, I'll, I'll move on. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. So yeah, make note of that and get that, save those emails <laughs> that you've had back and forth. Okay. So somebody asked, 
What can they do if they witness animal abuse? Is it ever allowed or permitted, and I'm guessing no, to kind of steal a pet, so to speak? You know, like you notice the neighbor three doors down, the dog is chained and living in filth and rarely fed or hit or whatever. Is it ever like, can you get by like stealing that dog (laughs) and then to save it, so to speak? I so wish I could say yes to that. Um, It it does come up a lot. Uh, A lot of people do call in with questions to me as well. And then, you know, what you can do, though, is you can document whatever you can see um, with your eyes. Like if you're standing on the street and you could see what's happening, you could record that. You can't go up into somebody's uh, window and put a recorder in there like a peeping Tom, but you can record things. If you, if you could see it like from your roof, like if you stood on your roof and you could see into the backyard of your neighbor and that neighbor was, you know, harming, beating, you know, doing something bad, you could record that. Like some people have actually captured this type of information on their surveillance cameras at their homes and were surprised to know what to do with it. But then you can report it to the police. Because most, and again, every state is different on what they consider cruelty and what they consider abuse. But there is usually some low-level standard that, you know, that is enforceable, whether it be state law, whether it be local, uh, or, or even in some cases, like with dog fighting, you know, potentially federal you know, or something to that end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, abuses that are recognized. But here, you can record it and you can report it. Um, some states also have what, if the police are unwilling to do something, because sometimes I'm not really sure why, but they come off as somewhat offended. Like, why would you ask me to do an animal crime? I have human crimes. It's like, well, this is important too. This is very important. They're members of our family now. It's very different than it used to be. Um, but that said, if the police won't do anything, you know, you can, uh, you know, record it, you know, as it, just as, you, as if you could see it, you can record it. You have to be careful about recording sound in some places because like in, in Illinois, eavesdropping is not allowed. So like you can't record someone's conversation if they don't mm-hmm. know that they're being recorded. But if it's something like you're out in public, if it's something you can hear or see from the street corner or from, you know, from wherever you're allowed to be, you can record it. But, it, you know, then you could, you know, either present that, send that into the police, send that into state agencies. Uh, some states also have humane investigators which are, they're not given police powers. It's too much to everybody's surprise. They're like, well, what do you mean they can't go in and take a, take a dog out of a bad situation? But they can record it and they are often given far more deference than an average person because they've been trained and certified. So they can recognize what the abuses are. So definitely recording it. If you can't get anywhere with the police, you can call the media. Media often you know, takes an interest in this because you know, most people understand that hurting animals is wrong you know, and they will react to that, <laughs> you know, and somebody, you know, who is, is doing this, you know, uh, you know witness, you're witnessing usually animals out in the cold or extreme heat. There are a lot of states now, Illinois included, that have laws on what you can and cannot subject your animal to when it comes to temperature. Animals in hot cars, you know, as much as I want to tell somebody they can bust that window open and take the animal out, you're often required to call the police. And you have to check your laws. Uh, if they have a good Samaritan law, if they have, if, if the law, your local law or your state law allows you to break the window, then you can't. Because I have seen, it's been horrifying. You know, you see an animal trapped in a hot car and you know that that is an abuse and the police will not respond. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and yeah, you would be liable for breaking, you know, the window. Um, 
you know, you could even be potentially criminally, you know. So know your laws, know your local laws before you act. Get your, you know, get your iPhones out, get your smartphones out and record because the power of the video is, I, I can't, I can't tell you enough how much more powerful that is in court cases. Um, you know, even when, when they have police dog shootings, you know, when they're wearing body cams or there's dash cams, it's far easier case to prove. So, I mean, anything you can do to capture that this is happening, any repeat offenses, because most states do have cruelty laws. And most of, most of the states, you know, if they haven't enacted them, they are at least considering them for the hot cars and you know, dogs in extreme you know, weather conditions. So, yeah, definitely know the laws and record whenever you can. When it's something that you would normally, you would be able to witness and testify to, you can record that. Okay. So real quick, we don't have much time left, so maybe we'll have to do like rapid fire answers. (laughs) Um, What if somebody adopts a dog and later another person claims it was their dog? Comes up all the time. Is there a quick answer? Uh, Usually um, it may involve a replevin. Replevin is a type of lawsuit where you can reclaim a specific type of property. It's where we use the property status of animals to our advantage. Um, if we're trying to, you know, recover property for someone or defend that. So if you are the person who lost the dog and that dog was adopted out to someone else, you can seek replevin. You can, you can file a replevin lawsuit. You have to do that wherever the dog is located. So like, say you were in Illinois, the dog is now in Texas, you got to file in Texas. Mm-hmm. The final dog can dispute whether there was, whether uh, ownership was properly transferred or not. And it may, it may well be that the adopter has the, the higher right the dog it depends if there was abandonment it depends if there were actions taken to recover the dog in a timely fashion um so it is a, it's a legal dispute and it can be disputed in the replevin court but the person who does not have possession of the animal is the one that would have to bring the lawsuit to okay. try to get the animal okay um therapy dogs and liability assuming a dog is not registered with a therapy organization that has coverage for them someone's just bringing a dog to work with them um, if clients sign a waiver, is that enough? Or is there more that's needed to protect the business owner with their dog? Oh, to protect the business, oh, the, the therapy dog owner? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that is very, uh, that's a real dicey issue because therapy dogs, you know, obviously for your listeners probably already know the difference between emotional, uh, you know, emotional support animals, you know, actual um, service animals and therapy dogs. Therapy dogs are, are, there to help other people, you know, so they are, they're trained, they're usually very docile, very friendly, you know, um, comforting, but if the uh, business owner, um, if they get liability waivers, that's a good, it's a good start. The problem can come up with minors. If there are any minors exposed to the animals, um, those liability waivers may not cover them. Mm -hmm. It really is a somewhat dicey issue, but it should, the liability waiver should be obtained from anybody interacting with the dogs if they want to, if they want a therapy dog around. Now, again, most therapy dogs are so highly trained, it would be, you know, unbelievably uh, uncharacteristic for a therapy dog to act out. But a therapy dog can be provoked like any dog. If someone comes up and starts kicking that dog, you know, again, a therapy dog, you probably have to do that four or five times you didn't do anything, just so highly trained and and not, they don't respond to that. But if something did happen and there was an incident, you know, yeah, there is still potential liability, but the waivers do help. And the therapy dog, and people's understanding that the therapy dogs are there to help the people who want their help. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and we probably don't have a time to go deep into this, but I, I'm still curious about like bullet points. So let's say there's a divorce situation or a couple splitting up and they both want the dog. Like what do people need to know to help? Like, let's say they're in this situation. What do people need to know to help them stack the deck to get the dog? <laughs> Super hot topic here in Illinois. Actually, Alaska was the first state to consider like the, the animal's well-being or the best interest of the animal. You know, Illinois followed second, you know, in, in where a divorce court. Now, this is different than Replevin. Replevin's different. Divorce has actual divorce laws in every state that covers it. Most of the divorce, most of the states treat the animals as property. So if the dog is in your name, you know, your registration is in your name, the purchase papers are in your name, the adoption papers are in your name alone, which is highly uncommon with a married couple. Usually they get an animal, you know, during that time. But you can also show that you're the person that if, if you have, the tendency and the trend hopefully will be more towards the well-being of the animal, not quite to the level of kids, but similar, you know, in a sense of looking at what their interests would be as well. You look at who cares for the animal most, where is the animal going to have the best life? Um, you know, who has provided the most care, who's able to provide veterinary care and other types of care that this particular animal is going to need. You know, so it just, yeah, like I said, it depends on your state. But if you're in a state that has, you know, well-being or best interests in mind, you know, Illinois, and I, I believe Illinois, Alaska, and I think there's a few others, you know, kind of lined up, um, then, you know, you can use kind of more traditional, like, you know, things of the animal uh, would be better off with one person or the other. If you don't have that, they're going to look toward more towards title. Like if you had that animal before you were married, that animal is likely going to go with you, period. You know, if the animal is not considered marital property then they're going to go with that individual. But if the animal was obtained during the marriage, um, if that animal was given as a gift to one party or the other, it's going to be the gifted party, the party you know, to whom the animal is gifted. So I suppose if you were stacking the deck, you might hope for a, a little note that says, here's Fluffy, Fluffy belongs to you, my wife, <laughs> you know, whoever. <laughs> yeah, put a, put a title on, obedience title on your dog, then it's yours. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, it's, it's, and again, none of them are foolproof. You know, the courts are changing. And the animal law is an area that is really, truly changing. And it, I think it's for the better in most instances uh, because they are, you know, they're members of our family. You know, we, we care about them. You know, we want the best for them. And, you know, the law always the last of the party when it comes to the changes, but they are going to get there. Um, and it's because people care about them. People like you, you have your, you know, the, the podcast, you know, speaking to people who care very much about their, their animals, they want the law to reflect that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Where would someone find a pet law attorney if they needed one? Well, there, um, you can look online and there's usually like referrals. Actually out in Washington too, there's Adam Karp. He has a, uh, a law practice and he has referrals for animals in, in most, most of the 50 states. <laughs> and we're okay. not, so there are, you know, just check online. And also with the local bar association, or I should say local, the state bar association. So every state will have a bar association. I know it sounds like everybody's going out to a party. No, it's just the, the law, the bar to passing, you know, the bar to practice law. And if you look up, you know, um, you know, Washington State Bar Association, oftentimes they'll have an animal law section, which is just a grouping of attorneys who practice in that area. You can call them and they'll they'll give you the names and numbers of, of attorneys to call in that state. Great. Thank you, Anna. I will link to your website on our show notes in case anybody has more questions for you. Um, and I wish you a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much. And please give uh, all your furry family members from me. Thanks. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.